You turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Psalm 46. The text is also printed in the bulletin. Psalm 46. Um, <clears throat> find this, uh, this little story in uh, maybe most of the Gospels, maybe not all of the Gospels, but in Mark chapter 4, one night, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was filling, threatening to sink the boat that they were in. Even the experienced fishermen among them were afraid uh, that this was it. This was no small storm. This is not something that they've dealt with before. Uh, They were really thinking, this is it. And Jesus was asleep, but his disciples woke him up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. Peace, be still. He said to the the sea, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then the disciples were afraid of Jesus, which is probably as it should be, instead of just being afraid of the circumstances of their lives, uh, actually being afraid of God himself. That's probably good. But I tell you that story uh, about one of the signs that Jesus did, and he called these things signs uh, that point to something about him. I tell that story because it will help us understand our psalm this morning. In Psalm 46, and we just sang it, we have that famous line in verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. That's where this comes from, Psalm 46. And I think we tend to hear that line as something said softly and sweetly, like a lullaby, cooed to pacify the disturbed soul. Be still, my sweetie, my darling. (laughs) I know that I am God. Um, But really we should hear it like an operatic crescendo, shouted out almost, bringing all the loud instruments starkly to a full stop. More like Jesus says it when he stops the crashing waves and brings a great calm over the sea that was about to destroy his people. So when God says, be still and know that I am God, his shout rings out among all the nations, bringing an end to the raging, crashing, roaring, foaming tumult. Bringing an end to enmity, strife, wars, persecutions, bringing a great calm over all the earth. Knowing that God is doing this, that that's the word that goes forth from him, and that's what he's up to. Knowing that this God is with us, he's our mighty fortress, as we've also sung this morning. means we don't have to be afraid in this world, in this war world. We don't have to be afraid Even when we find ourselves swept up in terrible conflicts, we don't have to be afraid. So let's pray, and we'll talk about that from Psalm 46. Father, we pray that you would teach us what you want to teach us, what you have uh, recorded in your scriptures, what you desire for us, what you will work into our hearts and in our minds through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's up to you. We know that it is good. It's hard for us to believe it sometimes. We pray that you would help us this morning to trust you as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when the psalmist starts off here, um, you know, in the beginning, you've got the imagery of mountains crashing down, falling into the sea. Or, like when Jesus uh, calms the storm at sea, these things are illustrations. That's being used as an illustration. Right? Uh, it, it symbolizes something. It's a sign of something. When Jesus says to the sea, peace be still, he isn't trying to just impress us with how big and strong God is and that he can access all of God's power over creation, so you'll just be overwhelmed with a sense of God's power in Jesus Christ over creation. You can do things like stop a storm when you're on, on, on the sea in a boat with him. It means more than that, right? It's an illustration. And here are the first verses of our passage. It's, it's an illustration. Basically, it's the assumption that, that God who made everything, God who's absolutely sovereign over his creation, who can do whatever he wants with this whole world, is also absolutely sovereign over the wild, surging chaotic, ocean-like forces of peoples and nations who live in constant strife and upheaval. So in the Bible, especially in the poetic parts, like Psalms, lots of poetry there, um, or in the clearly symbolic uh, parts, the apocalyptic parts, right? Like you see in the prophets, they're sometimes hard to understand for all the symbols used, or the book of Revelation at the end, which we know is just full of symbolic imagery. Throughout the Bible, the earth and the mountains picture for us, and I've said this before, <clears throat> picture for us the stability of God's people. It's the place where God lives with his people, the place God has created so that people can be there and survive there and live there and dwell there with him. That's the earth and the mountains, especially the high places. Right? While the seas... Picture the, the pagan nations in rebellion against God. That's the picture that you get from the seas throughout the scriptures. You, you can see it right here where the psalmist uses the same language at the beginning to describe the roaring waters in verse 3, and then the raging nations in verse 6. That's actually the same 
word in Hebrew, sorry, it doesn't come out in the English translation, but it's the same. What the waters do and what the nations do, it's the same. Roaring, raging tumult. The two are connected. They're in poetic parallel here. The basic idea, again, is that the God who's absolutely sovereign over creation, over the, the seas and the earth and the mountains, the God who's absolutely sovereign over that is also absolutely sovereign over the nations and their raging. The Lord who can calm the waves can also calm the peoples. But the picture is even more specific than him just calming things. It's a huge feature of this psalm, obviously, but it is a bit more specific than that because the illustration that you get in verse 2 involves the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea. That's not a normal thing to happen, even in cataclysmic events. Mountains aren't just thrown into the heart of the sea. And that's in poetic parallel with... uh, So that's verse 2, the mountains being moved in the heart of the sea. Poetic parallel with the city of God, the place where God dwells with his people. In verse 5, she shall not be moved. Same language there. So even though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, total destruction. Um, The city of God shall not be moved. So in the Bible, the undoing of creation, which is the picture that you have with the mountains being thrown into the heart of the sea, the undoing of creation is a picture of God's judgment. It's a picture of God's judgment. He's undoing his creation. Think of lots of places in the scriptures. Think of the flood, the great flood in Genesis 7. Or you think of the great plagues in Egypt in the book of Exodus. The world is being undone. The days of creation are being uh, reversed and and the world's being unmade in judgment. Or when the sky went dark and the earth quaked when Jesus died on the cross. God's judgment. These are pictures of God's judgment. In the creation account in Genesis 1, the very beginning, God draws the solid dry ground, so that's it's almost like a picture of him scooping up the, the earth and the mountains and, uh, and pushing away and setting boundaries for the seas and keeping them, keeping them down in their place, keeping the earth and mountains high and safe and stable, right, up out of the sea. Casting the mountains back into the sea is the undoing. It's, it's the judgment. That's what God does in judgment. And the psalm says that God's people don't have to be afraid even of something like that. Even when God undoes our world in judgment, we don't have to be afraid even of that. Even when he casts his own people back out into the nations, dispersing them in exile. His people don't even have to be afraid of that. And you see that same thing pictured several times in the Old Testament. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel swept off by the Assyrian conquerors. So the southern kingdom of Judah carried off into Babylonian captivity like a terrible riptide just tore apart the earth and the mountain of God, where uh, the city of God, the place where God dwelt with his people, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, carried off by the the surging sea of the Gentiles, the Babylonians. 
And these are the judgments of God. That's, that's clear everywhere in the scriptures. These are God's judgment against the sin of his people. And we could use biblical imagery to describe it by saying the mountains were cast into the heart of the sea. The mountains tremble at the swelling of the roaring waters. Right? It's like Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? You might have noticed um, the spate of recent doomsday movies. There's a whole lot of them in the last uh, decade or two. <clears throat> a scene from one of them, uh, Deep Impact, comes to my mind. Maybe you haven't seen that. It's got uh, Morgan Freeman in it, so it's pretty cool. <clears throat> uh, Deep Impact, a, a comet strikes the planet. And it's a, it's a big comet. Basically, it's going to destroy most of civilization. It hits the Atlantic Ocean, and tremendous tidal waves hit the coastlines, this, scene where this guy's just standing on the beach and this huge tidal wave comes. It's like hundreds of feet high. And it just wipes out all civilization. It really only stops at the higher ground of the mountains where the people are running to the mountains to to stay safe from the sea, from the destructive power. And if you can imagine, which I think movies like that can be helpful sometimes to sort of spark our imagination, if you can imagine the cataclysm the global cataclysm or the terror of something like that, then you're beginning to get a picture of God's judgment. In fact, in the greatest biblical picture ever of God's judgment in Genesis 7, the flood, the seas don't stop. They swallow up even the high mountains. There's no safe place. And when you're God's people... In ancient Judah, for example, and that, that's what's happening to you because of your sin. God's bringing what you deserve down upon your heads. As you're being dragged away from Mount Zion, and you're being cast into the heart of the cruel sea in forced relocation to Babylon, the people of God, the people who are supposed to be a people of peace, dispersed out into the chaos of the war world, and that's God's judgment. That's God's judgment. Now, I'm sure that has us all forming certain ideas in our minds about what God is like, absolutely contrary to our instincts, and made known only to us because God has made it known, he's told us, revealed it in his word. We think of of that judgment, that terrible, cataclysmic, awful, terrifying judgment, that's also God's salvation. That's, that's also a new creation every single time. When God undoes what he has made, it's only, and it's always, to make something new. God didn't end the whole world with the flood. He made it new. And God didn't utterly destroy his people in Babylon. He made that the place of their restoration in relationship with him. He called them there. We see in Prophet Jeremiah very clearly, he called them there to live for the sake of the people there, to be a blessing to the people around them in that pagan place. And he promised to bring them back into their land, to reestablish them. And he fulfilled that promise because he rules over the hearts of all, even the kings of terrible nations like Babylon. He's absolutely sovereign over everything. So the exile that his people experienced, the dispersion, 
that God's people deserved in his judgment the mountain being cast into the heart of the sea turned out to be good for his people. It's for the good of them in making them new. It turned out to be for the good of the whole world in making it new. So the people of God, the people of peace, dispersed out into the chaos of the war world, that's God's judgment, and it's good. It's good. Today is St. Patrick's Day. Patrick was uh, born in 385 in Roman Britain. In the beginning of his confession, which is sort of a spiritual autobiography, he says this. I'll just read most of the opening paragraph of it. He says, My name is Patrick. I'm a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. It's a pretty good position to take. I was taken captive when I was nearly 16 years of age. I knew not the true God, and I was brought captive to Ireland with many thousand men, as we deserved. For we had forsaken God and had not kept his commandments and were disobedient to our priests who admonished us for our salvation. And the Lord brought down on us the anger of his spirit and scattered us among many nations, even to the ends of the earth. And there the Lord showed me my unbelief that at length I might remember my sins and strengthen my whole heart towards the Lord my God who looked down on on my humiliation and had pity on me. Have you ever felt that God was undoing your life because of your sin and it was something that you actually deserved? In his absolutely sovereign grace, that's the kind of time where he's making you new. He's not just destroying you. He might be undoing you, but it's to make you new. And that's the unique, wonderful thing about God's judgment. He can use it for our restoration. His judgment can be for our restoration. You see, when we judge, especially when we judge God, which we've done throughout the history of our race, when we judge God, when we find Him not worth listening to, not worth trusting, not worth loving, not worth obeying, we've judged God, we reject Him, and we kill Him, and we wish He was gone forever. And that's what we did when he came in the flesh. We judged Jesus and we crucified him to get him out of the picture. That's what we do when we judge. But when God judges us, he makes things right. And he makes us new. That's what he did when he came in the flesh. God judged our sin. It was our sin. God was judging us. In Jesus Christ, on the cross, in the crucifixion, in the ultimate exile, casting our humanity into the outer darkness. He judged us, and it was for our salvation, and it was to make a new creation. It's not because he was done with us. It's not because this was it, and it was all over between us and God. He judged us, and it was for our salvation. When God judged us at the cross, Jesus died, and so our war with God And in Christ, our war with each other died. He killed it. He destroyed it. 
He made a bloody end to our war. He waged peace by the blood of the cross. It was a violent end. He made desolations upon the earth when he made peace by the blood of the cross. That's what God has done. That's the kind of thing God does in his absolutely sovereign grace. He casts mountains into the heart of the sea to make the whole world new again. So when God's people find themselves judged and exiled and cast out and dispersed, it's so that he can bring real peace and he can make all of our wars cease. It's not intuitive for God's ancient people to think that way, to think that being carried away into Assyria, being swept off into Babylon was for their good. That is not intuitive. They just thought it was the end. They were being carried away with fish hooks, dragged with ropes, with rings in their noses. And it was because they deserved it. So it's not intuitive to see that as God's mercy, as God's grace, as God's salvation. It's not. You have to be told that. You have to believe that. None of it was jolly good fun. Just like being in a boat on the stormy sea about to drown is not jolly good fun. But Jesus is the sovereign Lord over those forces, and Jesus can use even the forces of chaos to bring about his peace. He can do it. God can do it. The whole book of Habakkuk is about that. The question is, how can you do this? How can you use these raging nations to destroy your people and it's good for your people and you're making promises to your people and you're saving your people through this? How can you do that? But again, exactly, that's what happened at the cross. The, the nations raged. The kingdoms tottered. We rose up against God. We did our worst against God in the flesh and he used it all to accomplish our salvation. It was our worst turned around to be the best for us. God used the raging sea of human rebellion, swallowed, swallowed up even the high ground of humanity in Jesus Christ. He's the high ground of humanity. And it swallowed him up, these raging seas, and he used that to create a new place for us to stand in, in our relationship with him. He used our war. He's absolutely sovereign in his grace. He used our war against him to bring about peace between us. He used our worst evil to bring about our best and highest good. And if he's capable of that, and if he wanted to do that, and if he really did do that, then he's our refuge and our strength and our mighty fortress, even when it seems like our worlds are collapsing and we're being undone. Because that kind of place is his cup of tea. The God who can do things like this this God is with us. He's in the midst of us, the psalm says. He's made us his city, his holy habitation, the place where his glory dwells, a kingdom that can never be shaken, as it says in Hebrews, a kingdom that can never be shaken. Even if it's cast out into the heart of the sea, it can never be shaken. If that happens to us, if we're cast out into the heart of, our, uh, of the sea, it, it won't be for our ultimate destruction. It'll be for our good because that's the kind of stuff this God does, this God who's with us. That's what happened with Jesus' first disciples after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. 
they hunkered down and they holed up in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Thought it was a safe place to be. Right? I mean, he had told them to wait until they were clothed with power from on high, with the power of the Holy Spirit. He told them to wait, wait until Pentecost. But the, he said, go out into the world then, into all the world, making disciples. You go. You don't stay here. You go. But they lingered, and they lingered too long, so he dispersed them. That's what you get through the book of Acts. He dispersed them. He cast them out, and it was not jolly good fun. He used the persecution of his church to drive them out among the nations. And to all the peoples, he cast the mountain into the heart of the sea, and then the nations came to know his salvation. All of them. That's the story of our history since Christ. All the nations coming to know his salvation. The church brought the peace of Christ to the war world, reconciling enemies. That's the message that we have. Reconciling us to God, reconciling us to one another, making us brothers and sisters through faith in Jesus Christ. The church has always carried the message of Christ's peace to a violent world, an aggressive world, a hostile world, where we've faced enmity, strife, and persecution, where it hasn't been just jolly good fun all the time. But wherever the church is, wherever she goes, there's peace with God, peace with the neighbor. And one day, it's all going to be perfected. One day, the Prince of Peace, that's his name, will come again to fully establish his peace on earth. And the church proclaims the message of the new creation, and that's what it is in our psalm. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. Isaiah has the same message in, in chapter 2. It says, he shall judge between the nations. It doesn't just mean destroying them. It means fixing them, fixing the war, bringing an end to it. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. One day, one day the Lord Jesus Christ will speak. Peace, be still. He utters his voice and the earth melts and the raging nations will become like a sea of glass. It's a picture you get in Revelation. A sea of glass, like crystal. Perfectly smooth. Great calm like the world has never known. In fact, let me read a little bit from the end of Revelation, from chapter 21. This is John's vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. New. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. doesn't mean there's no salt water oceans anymore. And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. One day, God's presence among his people will mean that there's no more chaotic rebellion, no more unruly conflict and the pain of conflict, no more war between us and God, between us and each other, nations between nations, only peace with God and neighbor for all eternity. I can't imagine it. But it's coming. And even now, he calls to you and says, Peace, be still. Cease your strivings against God and others. Know that I am the Lord. You might find yourself sometimes swept up in terrible conflicts where it might really feel like this is it, this is the end. But you don't need to fear those things. Because... You've got the God who's able to make new beginnings out of ends. The God who's able to turn everything upside down and make it new. This God is with you. This God is with you, and you're safe in Him as your refuge and your strength and your shield and your mighty fortress. You're safe in your relationship with Him in Jesus Christ. So, so we won't fear opposition. We won't fear persecution. We won't fear it. We won't fear dispersion. We won't fear, even if he casts us into the heart of the sea, we won't fear losing our identity as God's chosen and beloved people. Because he said he's with us. We won't fear the worst that this war world can do to us because God is sovereign over it all. And he can do whatever he wants with it. And he's with us. We will tell the world, come and behold the works of the Lord. Close with a quote from a song that we sing crown him the lord of peace whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise his reign shall know no end and round his pierced feet fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet amen let's pray Father, our greatest need is for peace, peace with you, peace with our neighbors. And the only way this need can be truly fulfilled is if you've brought it once and for all through the death of your son. You made peace by the blood of his cross. You've ended the war, the strife that exists between humanity and yourself. Those who are in Christ by faith who go to him for refuge can know real peace with you. We can know it now. We can know real peace with our neighbor in the name of Jesus Christ, our brother and sister in the church. We pray that that peace would extend and cover the whole earth like the waters cover the seas. And we pray for the day to come quickly when your peace is made perfect and all peoples everywhere are made calm, made to be still, and know that you 
our God, that you are our Lord, and that you are with us always. We pray that this would give us peace as we go from here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.